Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our Body Positive Parenting Primer, which is available for purchase on our website. The Primer is a virtual seminar that you can watch or listen to just like a podcast. You'll learn the five fundamentals to truly transform your home environment and set your kids up for body positivity fast. Get the primer at fullbloomproject.com slash course. That's fullbloomproject.com slash course. The Full Bloom Podcast is also brought to you by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong so that more children can fully bloom. To learn more about how you can support us, please visit fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. As a patron of the podcast, you will gain access to the complete A to Z guide to body positive parenting. This interactive and downloadable guide contains a wealth of content, including research and resources to help you put the fundamentals of body positive parenting into action. Again, the complete A to Z guide to body positive parenting is an exclusive benefit to our patrons. Learn more about sponsoring us at fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. So today marks our very first episode of season two of the Full Bloom Project. Zoe, I'm excited I'm about so this. I'm excited. We did it. We did the first season and now we're on to the second season. And I'm very excited about what we've put together. We've already knee deep in interviews and I love the direction we're moving in. I know last season we covered real fundamentals, the ABCs of body positive parenting. And this season we're we're going to be going into uh, new and untraversed terrain, so I'm I'm really excited. Yeah. Also, I think we tried to focus this season, season two, on kind of some of the basic questions that people were coming back to us with, right. so we could take a little bit more of a deep dive on helping parents and other listeners, providers to help address some of those body positive parenting basic questions that Mm -hmm. they just seem to, as they're putting the fundamentals of the podcast into play, they just seem to keep feeling like these these topics are hard and they want a little more of a deep dive from us. That's right. Yeah, and I think as today's episode sort of speaks to, we want to sort of explore all the different areas that intersect with body positivity and body positive parenting. And I I think today's episode with Virginia Soul Smith is quite fitting to begin the season with because we spoke with Virginia about a lot of things that relate to body positive parenting right before you even have a child to body positively parent. Is that fair to say? (laughs) Yeah, we kind of think about this as this conversation is really the birthplace of when body positivity interacts with parenting. And that begins from our perspective in this podcast with pregnancy and early motherhood. Right. We were thrilled to speak with Virginia Soul Smith. 
who is a journalist, author, and fellow podcast host whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, Elle, and many other well-known publications. And her recent book, The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, is a must-have for your body-positive parenting library. So today's episode will cover all things body image, feeding, and eating when it comes to pregnancy and motherhood. And you'll see, we're going to cover all the pressures women face to have the perfect pregnancy um, and how that intersects with weight and body image and particularly with the world of infertility treatments. Yeah, I, I was particularly thrilled to walk through the research behind Virginia's recent New York Times Magazine piece which was called When You're Told You're Too Fat to Get Pregnant, which inspired a lot of interesting dialogue on the comments and uh, all through social media. It's just all about the common misconceptions about the impact of weight on fertility and the impact of weight stigma before, during, and after pregnancy. So I'm excited to play this interview. Yes. So, Virginia, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about you and what drew you to write about the intersection of feminism, body image, and health? Sure. Well, you know, these are topics that have always really interested me as a writer and as a person. Um, but my career started in women's magazines where I spent a long time, you know, on the dark side, so to speak, writing a lot of <laughs> Articles where I would, you know, I would do a lot of rationalizing, like, it's not really a weight loss story. It's about blood sugar. It's about portion control, you know, really talking myself through, but really they were weight loss stories. And over the years, I became increasingly disillusioned because I knew it wasn't making our readers' lives better. It wasn't making my life better to be doing that reporting and writing. But the real turning point was almost six years ago now when my first daughter was born. And the experience of becoming her mom and really starting to think about how to talk about food and bodies in a way that I would feel good about, you know, my daughter's absorbing and understanding, that was a really big turning point for me in terms of how I began exploring these topics in my work. And so that led to me writing my book, The Eating Instinct, launching our podcast, Comfort Food, and then continuing to, um, you know, pursue these topics in my journalism well, speaking of your journalism, um, we're very excited about your recent article in New York Times Magazine, When You're Told You're Too Fat to Get Pregnant. And we really want to talk to you about that today. We want all our listeners to be aware of that article and just all that you learned. Um, but you wrote a fantastic book called The Eating Instinct. And I'm going to let you just say like a couple of words about why that book really does belong on the shelf of any body positive parent. Sure. So it really starts with my story as a mom. And, you know, when I became pregnant with my first daughter, I was, you know, very, of course, as everyone is, very concerned about having this quote unquote perfect pregnancy, all the prenatal yoga and, you know, supplements and cutting out of food groups and all of that stuff that I thought I had to do to make a perfect, healthy baby. You know, I really thought like literally every bite I ate was informing <laughs> the health of my future child because that's the message women are told so often. And then when my daughter Violet was one month old, she nearly died. She went into massive heart failure. And the reason is she was born with a pretty rare set of congenital heart defects that were not discovered in utero and that I know now could not have been prevented no matter how many prenatal yoga classes I went to, no matter how many kale smoothies I was drinking. So it really forced me to reckon with this whole idea of like us thinking our bodies 
are, you know, need to achieve this level of perfection in order to be good moms, in order to raise healthy kids. And I really had to even reckon with the whole idea of, you know, what do I mean when I say I want a healthy baby? My daughter technically wasn't healthy. She's a fantastic human being who I can't imagine my life without. So there was a lot of challenging all of my preconceived notions. And then specifically what happened that led to the eating instinct is as a kind of side effect of her medical interventions, all the tubes and sections and things that were happening to Violet in the hospital, she completely stopped eating. And she became dependent on a feeding tube for the first two years of her life. And so now, not only did I feel like my body had failed this child because I hadn't been able to, you know, build a healthy baby. This is, of course, in quotes. That's not how I really think about it now. But that's what I was wrestling with at the time. Now I couldn't even feed my daughter. And, you know, feeding is the most fundamental act of motherhood. It's like what we think we're, you know, it's like kind of all you can do with a newborn <laughs> other than watch them sleep. So <laughs> to not be able to feed her, breastfeeding failed very quickly. She wouldn't take a bottle. She was a traumatized little girl who was afraid of anything coming near her mouth. And so I had to just throw all of the scripts out the window, all of the rules, everything I thought I knew about what it meant to feed a baby well, what it meant to be a good mom, you know, and really what I thought about both my body and her body. All of that was challenged by this experience. And so going through the process of helping Violet learn to trust food again, which we did have success since she's a very happy oral eater now at almost age six, um, you know, going through that whole process, it made me realize, you know, okay, I have to make this child feel safe around food when maybe I don't feel safe around food all the time. I don't trust my body. I have all this trauma I have to work through. But actually, you know, Violet's sort of a metaphor in the book because really that's something so many of us are struggling with. Feeling safe around food, feeling good in our bodies, these are like these universal issues that we're all grappling with. And so the book starts with my personal story, but then it goes on to explore more about this whole standard of perfection in pregnancy, about how moms sort of struggle with our identity when our kids aren't eating the way we expect them to. You know, I explore a lot about eating disorders, the development of different types of eating disorders, and the, the larger cultural framework that contributes to those things. And I'm really kind of constantly throughout the book charting how do we find a way to feel safe around food? How do we find a way to trust our bodies? Those are the big questions that I wanted to wrestle with. I want everyone listening to to read your book, and and we'll definitely do a giveaway when for this podcast, oh, um, so that people can uh, gain access to it. Um, but one thing that I heard you say multiple times, um, and you know that your article really connects to, um, which is kind of the just that beginning of becoming a, a mom, is that pregnancy process, mm-hmm. and and then we have this the weight, you know, where it's such a t- touchy subject in general for people, and then we get pregnant, and you know, in your or we don't. Um, which you talk about in your article, you write about the long-held premise that high body mass contributes to infertility in women. And I would love for you to share where does this thought come from and what does the research actually say? Sure. So, you know, yes, this is this like sort of deeply ingrained concept, um, both that you'll hear from reproductive endocrinologists and OBGYNs and also just like out in the world, people think like, higher body weight, automatically less healthy pregnancy or less likely to conceive. And, you know, when I dug back into it, 
It comes from a couple of studies that were done in the 1950s and 60s that found associations between higher body weights and certain reproductive disorders, things like PCOS and um, infertility was one of the things they looked at. But it never proved causation. And we've never been able to do research that could show causation between those two things. So we know there is some kind of relationship that may be true for some women, not for all women, because we also know that many women in larger bodies have perfectly healthy pregnancies, um, are able to conceive quite easily. So it's not this one-to-one ratio. And the research shows that over and over. But what we're really grappling with is this internalized notion about what we think a mother's body should be and what we want from women in order to qualify for motherhood. And so all of those internalized expectations and biases, that's being layered in over what the quote unquote science says. And that's really skewing not only, you know, how we as women think about our pursuit of motherhood, how doctors treat us, it's also skewing how the science is being done itself. Like no one's really going back and questioning that premise too too intensively because you know, it's sort of this foregone conclusion that we've all accepted, but that's based on our cultural biases. Mm. I mean, and, and as I was reading the article and even just hearing you right now, just we're so struck by this crazy catch-22. There's like recommendations, whether they're explicit from the doctor or just like messages from society, like lose weight so you can actually have a healthy baby or get pregnant or in this case of your article, qualify for reproductive assistance like IVF but then possibly put yourself at even higher risk for complication than you were before having done so. And, I mean, that's coming just from what we understand anyway about the the perils of things like radical weight loss or weight loss surgeries. And, like, are you like, what's going on here? I know. (laughs) And, and you you know, I'm just really curious to hear what you have to say because you you read the science. Like, you looked at this and I just, yeah, I want to hear from you and what your takeaways are and, yeah. Well, first, I should start by talking a little bit about the the person who brought me into this. So Gina Balzano, who's the lead character in that article, she's also a character in The Eating Instinct. She's the lead character in Chapter 6. You know, I started reporting Gina's story initially because I was doing this chapter in the book about what it's like to, like, how experiencing bariatric surgery changes your relationship with food. Because I was really interested, you know, I'd seen... In Violet's case, you know, experiencing intense medical trauma totally changed her relationship with food. And so I was like, well, what happens for people who, you know, not only undergo a really intensive medical experience, but it's a medical experience designed to change how they can, you know, physically change the shape of their stomach and the size of their stomach. So that was something I was interested in exploring in the book because I, you know, it felt like we're seeing such trauma inflicted on these people's bodies. And at the same time, I really wanted to kind of understand what drives somebody to make the decision to have that surgery. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for the many factors people are weighing up when they decide if that's something they're going to pursue or not. And so, you know, in talking to Gina, I initially just kind of wanted to hear about her surgery process. But of course, I needed to know the backstory, what brought her to that point. And when she told me, you know, I was in a very much a higher weight body, and I was told by not one, but two reproductive endocrinologists that I could never get pregnant unless I lost the weight. And she said, you know, I was at the point where I would cut my arm off to have a baby. So fine, I'll cut off my stomach. And she Mm. pursued weight loss surgery, went through an entire year of that ordeal. You know, it's a huge trauma on your body. There's tons of side effects that come out. And then when she did, when she finally was medically cleared to pursue fertility again, keeping in mind, she's years into this journey at this point, and she's just lost another year. And we know time matters with fertility as well. 
Um, she finally meets with a doctor who's willing to treat her, and she says, I would have treated you at your highest weight. You didn't need to go through that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, I just, my heart broke for her when I heard that because it just shows what we're asking of women and this burden we're putting on women in terms of, I'm not saying motherhood, I think motherhood or the pursuit of motherhood should be easy. I don't, you know, I don't think any of us who do it find it particularly easy day to day. There's, of course, challenges to this process. But this idea that we're holding this bar so high for women and that we're expecting this level of perfection, that is just, it's hugely problematic. And I see it in so many different ways. I mean, Gina's story is very extreme, but I think we've all experienced milder versions of that. And so really, you know, the science does not support the way these women are being turned away from clinics. And so when I started, you know, so the other thing is I thought, well, is she just one isolated case? No, half of the 20 largest fertility clinics in the country have body mass index cutoffs and many, many smaller practices do as well. So this is incredibly common. And this is really, this is changing, you know, what an entire generation of children will be because we're, we're so controlling the extent to which women can pursue fertility or not. <sighs> it's, I, I tend to be the more kind of research wonk mm-hmm. of, of our duo. It's totally fair to say. Um, I could just chat for hours with anyone. But I, I just, well, I want to connect with you about that. Like, what it, was it like to read all of the science about this? What, what did you feel like you really took away and you want people to take away from that? And, and did you feel like it, it debunked any of these myths about weight and fertility? Absolutely. So, you know, a big one that comes up when you start talking to the fertility doctors, they say over and over, you know, we're not doing this to be mean to anyone. Of course, that breaks our hearts to have to turn women away. But, you know, we're worried about the health of the mother and the health of the baby. And that's, you know, how can anyone question that? (laughs) Of course, we're all worried about the health of the mothers and babies. Like what a noble pursuit they have. I just want to stop there, just just interject, because I feel like that is such a blanket excuse that yes. I hear from so, so many people, even in my office, about pursuing the thing that is causing the most stress in their life, weight loss typically, mm-hmm. that it's just under the guise of health. And it's just, it's like, it's starting to just drive me so crazy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, it's because it's a form of trolling. I mean, it's really, and it's very yeah. paternalistic to say, we yes. know what's best for your health. So yes, it's, it's hugely problematic. And then when I drilled into the research, because I thought, okay, I can understand ethically, you can say a woman could make a choice to say, I'm going to ignore some grave health risk to my own health. But it's a different ethical question to say she wants to ignore some risk to her future child's health. It's not a clear ethical question because keep in mind, hey, you know, we're talking about risks and research, not individuals. And also these children don't exist yet because you won't give them IVF. But that's a different question. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But anyway, let's say, you know, it's like, let's really look at what are the risks to these kids. And you know, when you look at the numbers, it's easy for for the doctors to say things like higher weight bodies double your risk of stillbirths. But when you look at the absolute frequency that stillbirths are occurring, we're talking about a rate of the average rate is the four per a thousand live births, and it goes up to eight per a thousand live births. It's not going to 50. It's not going to 100. You know, it's still the absolute frequency of these things happening is really, really rare. So to put that on a woman and say, like, you don't get to do this because there's this tiny, tiny chance, but it's a tiny bit larger than the other person. Like, that's, it feels like a real distortion of the research to me. And it feels like that is a choice that a mother should be able to make with her, you know, with her partner, with her doctor, 
of course, looking at the research, but that it shouldn't be kind of handed down to her in this in this top-down approach that doctors are using. Yeah. And this question that I can't remember if I pulled this, if we pulled this question from your article or if it's a question that we actually had, but either way, this question like, so just how dangerous then really is it for a larger woman to have a baby? And then the question around the question, which is, should we even be asking that question? Right. Like, I, we love that you quoted Linda Bacon. Yeah. We're firmly rooted in Hayes' ethos, the health at every size um, paradigm, which we're talking, trying to talk more and more about on the podcast. And love that you quoted her, this idea that healthcare needs to take care of our lived bodies, regardless of size. So which of those questions is missing the point? Which of those questions should we be asking? I think we can put to one side the question of risks to the to the fetus. I think that that data is being overstated. I think we know that with good maternal care and with good, you know, with good health care, women in higher weight bodies can have safe and healthy pregnancies. And so that's the other that's the other piece we should talk about when we do find these associations between higher weight bodies and the increased risk of various problems with the baby or with the mother's health. What the research doesn't tell us is how much of that is due to the large body itself and how much of that is due mm. to how healthcare providers treat women in large bodies. Stigma plays the a stigma. huge role. So that's a big thing we need to wrestle with, and which is why when we say, oh, but we're worried about the health of the mother and the baby, okay, if you're really worried about that, think about how you can practice weight-inclusive neutral care that doesn't stigmatize women, that doesn't refer them more aggressively to procedures with risks, that doesn't sort of assume they're this walking health risk, but in fact meets them where they are in their lived experience, which is what Linda Bacon is talking about. And so then the other piece of it is, okay, even if it's true that women in higher weight bodies are at greater risk for infertility or are going to be more difficult to treat an infertility, you're an infertility doctor. (laughs) That's what you're there to do. (laughs) So why are you turning away a a patient who might be a harder case? That's not about anybody's health. Your job there is is to solve the problem they've presented you with. But what we found when we started digging into it is, you know, these doctors are also really worried about their success rates. They're also really worried about their stats and how the clinic can market that success rate. And so they have a financial reason to steer away from the harder cases that's also coming into play here. Yeah, I, I um, it, it just loops back around to this. Last season, we really, we feel that we identified that weight stigma is truly the biggest body positive problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just, it seems rampant in this conversation, you know, in this, in this scenario, in, in the infertility situation, and just, just getting pregnant in a larger body. Um, And to be fair, just being pregnant in general, I mean, I, my experience of gaining weight during pregnancy was terrible. You got a lot of flack from your doctor, right? The stigma around it from my doctor was really upsetting, and it was completely unnecessary. Completely. Um, And I just can only imagine what it's like to be in a larger body and have just that constant, a constant conversation about that. Well, I was listening to you, and I was... thinking about weight stigma a lot and also thinking about the research and how this, my doctor in particular was, you know, just not informed enough. Most Mm -hmm. doctors are just not informed enough and not as informed as you are 
in that they don't understand the research at all. They just understand, okay, it's it's more risky to be that that correlation right. they've just been taught. And mm-hmm. so they're just they're just spending time trying to manage what they've been taught and not able to actually look at the research and sit with people and help them. Well, because it's blaming the patients for something that, you know, in fact, all this risk they're worrying about may be coming from healthcare's own failings. You know, it may not. And, you know, that was something else that came up in the article. Like a lot of times clinics turn away these women because they don't have the equipment to treat them safely, but they don't explain that it's their own failing. They say, go away and lose weight. I mean, they're, we're just continually re-stigmatizing these women. Well, and that's where, uh, it's just to interject, like that's where it's more akin to like, if you can't fit in a seat on an airplane mm-hmm. or a lot of patients that I have in bigger bodies who have incredibly stigmatizing experience of shopping for clothes. Right. That, you know, why should you be made to feel other just because they don't carry your size and like whose failing is that like right. is that the failing of the brand or is that your failing for not fitting into the brand and and so it's it's interesting to think about him interchangeably like that but it sounded like you were going to ask Virginia a question. Leslie. Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit, you know, I, I think that what we're talking about in general is weight stigma, you yeah. know, and how there's this bias that if someone's in a larger body, there's a problem there when, in fact, we know that just like height, we, we're a completely diverse species in terms of weight. And let you know, let's talk about how weight gets talked about when it comes to pregnancy and what the implications of this may be like in your OBGYN's office, regardless of whatever size you are, mm-hmm. but particularly for a larger size woman who is not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, one of the things that always has bugged me about the way weight is talked about during pregnancy is you're told there's like goals of average gain, weight gain per week. Like, I forget what it is, but, you know, in your first trimester, you can gain a pound a week. And then in your second trimester, two pounds, whatever, you know, whatever the numbers are. And I just always think, like, whose body got that memo? Like, <laughs> whose body <laughs> is so regulated that it just, you know, gains exactly this small amount every week, but no more, no less? Like, that's, you know, that's just the type of, of advice that's designed to drive women insane because you're going to feel like you fail it one way or the other every week um, when your body doesn't measure up. So I think there's a lot of that. And I think... What it comes down to is our healthcare system takes these kind of large, you know, things like the body mass index, these tools that were designed to measure populations on a very large scale, and then we apply them to people. And that doesn't really ever make sense because an individual person's health is so much more complicated than one number. It's so much more, you know, there's so many different factors at play. And to reduce you to that one point on the body mass index scale or that one number on the scale of how much you gained or didn't gain in the last week of your pregnancy, I mean, it's just missing the larger picture in a way that's, you know, it's not just insensitive. It's also really dangerous. It is. And it's, I think where it's particularly reckless is it really does not take at all into consideration kind of like mental health, sort of emotional well-being in that. Some minds, it's like, you know, we, we talk sometimes on the podcast about we had an interview with Evelyn Triboli where we reframed junk food, right? We mm-hmm. really like that she calls it play food or fun food. And we're really into kind of helping parents stop using the word junk food, yeah, right? Yeah, I love that. Um, but 
Leslie and I had a conversation a while ago, totally off off air, you know, where we were talking about how it's junk food. Like the expression is not inherently horrendous. You know, it's not like dangerous just to use the word junk food, because in some cases, some brains, right, some neurochemistries can can sort of tolerate gray areas better. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like you can say junk food, but you're comfortable eating junk food and and that's okay. You know, whereas someone might hear junk food and then sort of have some wiring that they're a little bit more inclined to do more categorical thinking, right? Or dichotomous Mm -hmm. thinking, black Mm -hmm. and white thinking, and then get into sort of dangerous thought patterns, right? Where this is good, this is bad. I want to be a good person, so I'm going to stick with virtue. I'm going to stay away from bad things. And, And in a way, that's looking at the brain and the way that we just are wired. And so I'm thinking, too, about how some people, depending, you know, even, I don't don't, don't want to make generalizations, but whether or not you've experienced weight stigma in your life, you may go into the obstetrician's office and get one of those little guides like, oh, one to two pounds a week, no more, please. And you may be able to gain five pounds one week and be like, ah, you know, oh, well. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. And somebody else may get really preoccupied with that or really feel very shamed or disappointed with themselves. And, And this is a very private internal portion of this. And I'm just thinking about how, and it's nuanced and how, You can't know who's going to sort of suffer and anguish mentally with that stuff and who's going to be just fine. Like you don't you don't know. And people don't even report there's so much stigma around mental illness anyway or mental health. So this just barely gets talked about. So I guess I just wanted to mention that because it's a little it's a little piece. Right. I agree with you completely. And I you know, I talked about this a bit in the book, too. I think right now in our culture, we've there's been so much hyping and fear-mongering of the so-called obesity epidemic that we have this sort of, I think I see you see this in public health discourse, you see this in, um, you know, in healthcare settings and in how we as individuals think about our bodies. We have this idea that managing our weight and getting our weight to this quote-unquote, you know, good place is more important than mental health, that we need to sacrifice mm. everything on the altar of you know, normalizing our body to the certain size. And I think that is so dangerous. It's so dangerous with kids, for sure. Um, and it's so dangerous for all of us because it's it's completely under, you know, it's just completely underestimating how powerful the mental health piece is and how important it is. I mean, I don't think you can really talk about health without talking about mental health, but there's a lot of doctors out there who are really comfortable with just pretending it doesn't exist, basically. Which is kind of crazy because we have all this data in general now on weight stigma and stress mm-hmm. and how how the toll that's how, taking on our health. For yeah, sure. how negatively yeah. imp you know how how much that that may be the actual culprit for any of these correlations between higher weight and um, any poor health outcomes, so to speak, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that that might be that might be just it right there, that there's nothing wrong with the weight at all. Right. And there's a lot of data that's coming out that's pointing in that direction, which really, really requires people to take a look at it, to mm-hmm. our, our healthcare system, to take a look at it and consider it. And because of weight stigma, because of that itself, we just can't. Our, it just seems as if we have so far to go. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. I'd love to hear how how far you see we have to go before <laughs> an OBGYN would just not talk about weight 
hardly at all Mm -hmm. because of the negative implications on the pregnancy that talking about weight would have, Mm. you know, which, which it seems as if the research is starting to point in the direction that that actually may have way more of a risk than that 4% discrepancy that you were talking about right, regarding right. stillbirths. You know, like, that well, may, may be actually playing a be... role in those. Again, if, if we don't know what causes stillbirth. That's maybe a problematic example to use. But in general, all these health outcomes we worry about, to what extent weight stigma is contributing and causing them, is a really important question. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's... I think we do have a long way to go. I was very interested in the response to the New York Times piece, um, you know, especially the response from doctors. There were some doctors that reached out to me and said, you know, thank you for putting for you know putting this out here. We need to be talking more about this. We need to be really wrestling with weight stigma in our care. So I think there are doctors who are grasping it and really wanting to do things differently, and that's very encouraging. But that was not the dominant response from the fertility community, unfortunately. There was a lot of doctors who got on Instagram and social media and really defended that they had these cutoffs in their practices and even questioned, you know, the women in my story talked about the way the words that doctors use when they talk to them. And they were like, no, doctors would talk to patients this way. I mean, you can't just deny (laughs) this woman's experience. Like, this happened to her. So... It's interesting to see that black and white thinking is still so entrenched there. Um, mm. But, you know, I'm hopeful that there's going to be change. I think we can do a lot of work in helping women advocate for ourselves in these practices, and that makes a difference. I was really pleased personally when I went for my annual um, OBGYN exam and my physical with my GP. I just declined to be weighed this year, just kind of as an experiment to see, you know, I've been writing about this and re- reporting on it. I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. And nobody blinked, you know. They were like, okay, fine. And my weight didn't come up. Whereas the year before, I'd had to have this whole weird conversation with my doctor about it. So I think there's ways we can keep pushing the needle. But it is asking a lot of women, you know. And not everybody is always in a place to, like, charge in and advocate. That's, you know, it's heavy lifting. It's a lot of work. So I want to ask a more speculative question. So I know it's sort of moving away from the research. Because this is just us three having a think together. Mm -hmm. But... You know, especially because there's obviously a ways to go, and it sounds like a very controversial subject still in the medical field. But, like, our feelings and our emotions and the way that how we feel as parents affects how we think about our kids and raise our kids. I want us to all think about what do we think the implications are for children who are born into a family where at least one parent in the kind of context of conception or fertility pregnancy has been told there's something wrong with their body even before the child is born. And I'm just curious, like, what we speculate here, like how that might impact the child. And when you say, like, just to clarify, when you say something's wrong, do you mean that their body is too big? I mean, I suppose for the purpose of this conversation, let's stick with too big because we could probably... It would probably be a longer conversation if we if we got into other dimensions. But I don't know. I guess whatever comes to mind. But in the case of, yeah, like, let's let's stick with weight stigma. Whether it was, you know, there was, like, your friend that you wrote about where there's so much that needs to change about the body in order to have the baby in the first place. Or, you know, excessive trolling or hounding of the doctor on the patient. Like, oh, you're gaining too much weight. You're gaining too much weight. Like... If there's, you know, attention drawn to the way the body's not working well, 
I am just curious what you think the impact then may be on the child. So the, so if the mother has been told there's something wrong with her body, how that's going to inform how she parents the child and the impact on the child. I think it happens a lot of different ways. I mean, I think that one thing I see a lot because, you know, I've spent a lot of time interviewing parents about how they feed their kids is I think parents who have some sort of anxiety or trauma about their own weight tend to really wrestle with how controlling to be with their kids around food. And I see parents really, you know, having to sit with some like deep fear when they find their child really relishing a so-called junk food or a treat food. It can be really upsetting to those parents to watch their kid enjoy that food so much because I think they're worried like they are going to have no willpower and they're going to be uncontrollable around sugar. And this is this, you know, they go from like, oh, she's eating a cupcake to she's going to have my body. She's going to have all my same problems really quickly. And it's hard not to catastrophize, I think, because you've been told so often that your own body is wrong. I think that, I think a lot of our own issues with our bodies comes up in the way we feed our kids, especially, but, you know, and how we talk to them about clothes, how we talk to them about bodies in general, I think it informs, it's a pretty direct line. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, it's something that just as a, as a clinician um, and in doing this podcast, I, and, and just reading so much about, like, the fat studies literature, Weight stigma is so painful to experience that it's normal to want to protect one from that, one's child Mm -hmm. from that. Yes, definitely. Yet from also what we're, you know, what we're really understanding about the reality of changing one's body, which is um, very complicated and has lots of unintended consequences and also doesn't work right. um, 95% of the time, it's just a trap. And I, I think it's a real challenge and dilemma and something that, you know, when we're speaking to parents, I hear a lot that I just, you know, my child is starting to be concerned about becoming fat, which right there is weight stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and what am I supposed to do? I want to help them. Mm-hmm. And and the help that I, uh, as a clinician, want to want to help them with is is uncomfortable because it's it's like swimming right. upstream, you know. Right. And, and the help is like we need to change weight stigma not in, your body not the right. child's body it's it's just a myth it's just a total myth and that seems so hard for parents um and individuals to embrace that it's kind of like a big conspiracy and aren't you just like a, a wacky like conspiracy mm. theorist leslie <laughs> i'm like but no sitting in a closet like you are right now <laughs> right but no i'm not you know and and i guess this question just really highlights yeah. that, like, of course, well, because what you're, what you're asking them to do is recognize that in their effort to protect their child from weight stigma, they're continuing to perpetuate weight stigma. And that is such a difficult thing to sit with. And I know as a mom, I've had to sit with that and challenge myself on it. And um, it is painful. I think it's really freeing when you can acknowledge that because it does make it easier to then start to let go and give up some of that control and 
help your child trust their body, but it's a messy process for sure. Mm, <laughs> it's, it's, so it's, it's really, it's really hard. And, you know, it's, it's asking people to, you know, heal from, yeah, all their own body stuff. And we just, we don't show up to parenthood with this issue worked out. Most of us show up to parenthood in a really raw, vulnerable place with our bodies, especially, well, anyway, you get to parenthood as a mom, as a mom, especially that whether you've given birth, whether you couldn't give birth and have adopted, you know, you've like dealt with some heavy stuff with your body in that journey to get there. And now it's like, okay, switch a gear and be able to model this healthy relationship that you're still right. searching for. That's well, really hard. Hopefully our podcast and your podcast are offering a little bit of support for those that want it. And we could continue talking to, to you for, I think, probably another two hours, happily. <laughs> um, but we're mindful of time and we don't want to let you go before asking you this uh, question that we close with, which is just if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend that they do to help their children fully bloom? Well, one thing I do that I think is it's interesting to see how it's playing out with my daughters who are, I should mention, six and almost two. So, um, you know, we haven't yet gotten to the middle school years and times when body positivity is going to become much harder. But one thing I really do is I never comment on what they're wearing unless it's not weather appropriate, because I just feel like, and this also extends to like asking them to brush their hair or, you know, really anything. I think I, I require teeth brushing and like basic, like, are, is your body covered enough to be warm today? <laughs> but that's it. And this was a big shift for me. I love little girl clothes. I have two little girls. When they were babies, I was like really into planning the outfits and doing it. And then I realized like they're not dolls, they're people. And this is a huge, and they have the whole rest of the world to tell them whether their outfit choice is measuring up with the world. But they don't ever need to hear that from me. They don't ever need to hear something negative about what they chose to put on their bodies from me. What about just also positive? Because I'm I'm just sitting here thinking, yes, I agree with you. I'm so glad that you said that. I don't think anyone's quite talked mm-hmm. about it, that answered this question in quite that way. I mean, something I heard in what you said was that you just don't comment, which also means like, oh, that looks cute. Or, yeah, oh, I like the way harder. that matches. I will say things like, oh, I, I like how you put that shirt with that skirt or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because that's like her own creativity. That And my older daughter is a very creative dresser as a result. <laughs> so often it's worth commenting on because she's wearing, you know, some very interesting concoction that she's put some effort into. And I don't mind saying like, you know, wow, that tutu and that bathing suit top with that sweater is such a neat combination, you know, who would have put rain boots with that? Um, <laughs> like that, that I'm fine with, because I think that's more sort of reinforcing, like you're a creative person and you're taking pleasure in your body. And that's a good thing. Um, I never say you look so pretty or what a pretty princess. I never use those kinds of words. Um, because I just think that, again, they're going to hear that you know, anyone who has little girls knows this. Like, we can't go to the diner without people telling them they're pretty. Like, it's it's relentless, that talk. And so I am much more interested in engaging with them on, you know, what are you reading? What are you playing? What are you thinking about? That's, you know, that's where I'm here to talk to you. Um, but I will, I will applaud the creativity of an outfit, for sure. I think that's a neutral way to go about doing it. Well, that's a great place yes. to, to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time. We'll make sure that everyone can access the article and the book Mm -hmm. via the show notes. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. This was great. So that's our show. 
We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please email us at info at Full Bloom Project. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can visit fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can keep producing and delivering this content to you. And if you found this podcast interesting but want a little bit of a deeper dive on how to put uh, body-positive parenting into action, consider joining us in our Body Positive Parenting Primer, which you can purchase and listen to or watch at your leisure on our website at fullbloomproject.com slash course. Thanks all for listening, and remember to tune back in next time for more Body Positive Parenting Wisdom.